Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. She was the original Manic Pixie Dream Girl, F. Scott Fitzgerald's muse and the model for all flappers everywhere. Her lifestyle became society's view of the Roaring Twenties, but Zelda's inner life couldn't possibly live up to that glorious facade. Sometimes, trying to live up to your image can tear you apart. The end. Let's talk about Zelda Fitzgerald. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1920, Prohibition came into effect in the United States. A New York Times editorial reported that rockets will never fly. The ACLU was founded. The first commercial armored car was introduced. The National Negro Baseball League was organized. Joan of Arc was canonized as a saint. A Detroit radio station is the first to broadcast a news program on the air. Bella Abzug, Ray Bradbury, Rosalind Franklin, Lana Turner, and Helen Thomas were born. And on April 3rd, 1920, F. Scott Fitzgerald married Zelda Sayre and the Jazz Age crowned its couple royal. Zelda Sayre was born on July 24th, 1900 at the family's home in Montgomery, Alabama. She was the last of five living children of Judge Anthony and Minerva Sayer. She had one brother and three sisters, and she was the youngest by about six years. She was the last born by a lot of years, actually. Her sisters were 14, 11, and 9 years old when she came along, and her brother Anthony was the one that was 6 years old. So let's just say she might have been a surprise, shall we? <laughs> yes, we can say, probably say that. Now, her mother had picked her name from two literary characters who were both gypsies. That's kind of a little foreshadowing, isn't it? Yes, and uh, my son has a little friend named Zelda. I remember commenting, hey, you know, after Zelda Fitzgerald and the dad, who is considerably younger than me, looked at me open mouthed and said, no, the legend of Zelda. Oh, so fair enough, because that game <laughs> yep. is actually named after <laughs> Zelda Fitzgerald. Right. So so there, hipster dad, you actually really did name your child after Zelda Fitzgerald. <laughs> By two degrees of separation. <laughs> yes. So Papa, who was always referred to by everyone as Judge Sayer, he was first a city court judge and then later as an Alabama Supreme Court justice, was a pretty humorless and regimented man. He'd been a state representative as well as a state senator, and he was the nephew of a U.S. senator, and he had ties to the very, very high ups in the Confederacy. Now, remember how recent the Civil War was from here in 1900. Um, I'm sorry to say he was instrumental in upholding a law actually called the Sayre Election Law that pretty much disenfranchised black voters until mm, the 60s. Ouch. Yeah, not such an awesome legacy there. For his time and place, though, he was a very well-respected man. I should say, Papa died in 1931, and Rosa Parks moved to Montgomery around 1924. So for a brief period, these two oh. people on opposite sides of the civil rights movement were operating at the same time. In the same place. That is really interesting. Mama Minerva, you like Minerva, I liked Minnie. She went by Minnie. Um, she was exactly the opposite of the judge. She was artistic. She was a reader of literature and poetry. She had aspired to be a professional singer and actress and got so far as to audition for a play until her father yanked her back home. 
She auditioned actually for a member of the Barrymore Drew Theater Company. So if those names sound familiar, Miss Drew Barrymore comes from a long line of actors. And yes, indeed, those were her relatives. Yeah. Well, it was definitely a marriage of convenience. I mean, it was also of complete opposites. Now, Mama never fully got over that feeling of being snatched right from the doorstep of adventure. Or, I think, the realization that her new husband had the old South aristocracy without much money to back it up. Yeah. Actually, you know what? He was only a few, um, like a generation or two off from being a Yankee. Like his people had come from Long Island. (laughs) I guess they didn't talk about that too much. (laughs) Well, the family lived on the fringes of the good neighborhoods, like always, you know, the the bad end of the good neighborhood in rented houses. Usually Papa was fretting and angry about the cost of everything. And Mama uh, was just scheming to get around him and his disapproval about that. So that's really healthy. Well, when Zelda was born, her mother was 40 and her father was 42. But the household wasn't only the immediate family. There was a sister of Minnie's and a brother and the judge's mom lived with them. So yeah, he had to be tight with his nickels because he had a lot of people to support. Now still the house she grew up in was happy enough, at least till Papa came home every day. So (laughs) Zelda had her baby gang of boys and girls all from old guard families that she was definitely the boss of, including one Tallulah Bankhead who everyone called Dutch. Dutch? Who would have thought Tallulah Bankhead had such a I don't know. It doesn't really Dutch. It sounds so not Tallulah-y. <laughs> They'd skate down hills in this pre-helmet age and leap <laughs> off cliffs into the water and all manner of tomfoolery, which reminds me of my maternal grandmother purposely getting stuck in quicksand. She did? Yeah. I'm like, really? She goes, oh, yeah, it was a big joke. You'd put somebody in and see if you can get them out before the grown-ups caught you. I'm like, that's what? <laughs> anyway. Maybe quicksand doesn't work the way that I think it works. I don't, it's not instant. It just kind of sticks you. Oh. I don't really know. I don't want to encounter any. But Papa sort of didn't care what happened during the day. Honestly, as long as the girls were quiet at home while he was there, as far as their upbringing was concerned, he was into the cost. Otherwise, whatever. I don't care. So Mama was the daily parent. And there were servants in the house, a laundress, a gardener, a cook, and an African-American nanny that everybody called Aunt Julia. And we can say aunt because this is the South. Susan, well, says Aunt, Aunt Julia, you know, Aunt Julia lived in a cottage out back. Now we're saying that no, Aunt were... Julia, there was no Aunt Julia. <laughs> Aunt Julia, Aunt Julia, that's like a bug. But so you think that, you know, we're saying that they were frugal and they lived frugally, but they had, you know, they had servants and this house was large and it was airy and it had a huge porch. You know, and I think of like a southern porch down the side with a swing and clematis growing over it. It just sounded beautiful and airy and just a lovely southern bell house but there weren't most of the time any housemaids like you would think there were so mama and the older girls would have been expected to do some part of that so and like susan said the household was rather large and there was lots to organize and mama was probably a very busy person um but found time to spoil her baby and you know what i kind of hate the word spoil here's what she did she found time to pay extra attention to her two youngest children anthony and zelda do you know what i mean like she didn't spoil them in fact zelda's friends far from describing the young zelda as a brat or 
snotty or rotten or anything as her reputation tends to lead people to do now she was generous like if she had money for a treat everybody had a treat she was really kind and really patient with little kids she was very inclusive she was funny she was polite to grown-ups i mean it's the south but she sounds like a very nice kid a very kooky kid who probably had scabs on her knees all the time but she's she sounds very awesome Yeah, and her mom was also a free spirit when she was younger. So I think maybe her mom saw herself in Zelda and wanted things for Zelda that she didn't have, you know? And that's a natural, I think that's a natural parenting instinct. Oh, definitely. Mama tried to send Zelda to the Chilton Grammar School at six years old, but little Zelda came right back home and said it was like a prison over there and she wasn't having it. (laughs) Oh, dear. I know. Mama tried a lot. I I can imagine her just like laughing and throwing her hands up in the air. But she tried to teach her to be a lady. She gave her six rules. No limbs were to be crossed. They were limbs and not legs. Your back didn't touch the back of a chair. My back never touched the back of a chair. (laughs) You know, I read that and I thought of you immediately. I know. My grandmother taught me. My city grandmother taught me. Never ever does your back touch the back of a chair. That is not what it's for. It's for the people to pull out the chair for you. That's what the back is. So you could just sit on stools all the time, huh? That's perfectly comfortable to me. Makes me feel never mind. (laughs) But, um... Zelda didn't actually like all these rules. I mean, she was supposed to have a handkerchief and her gloves were supposed to be fastened. And heaven forbid, she had bare feet. That must be a sudden thing because in even in The Help, which is set in the 50s, which is a lot later, the narrator mentions that her mother said, death by no shoes, death by mosquito encephalitis. <laughs> well, so she was allowed to delay a year until she was seven, So that which is still the legal age to begin school in this state, by the way, weirdly. Um, really? But, uh-huh. You don't have oh. to send your child to school until seven. Oh. Nobody's going to start checking. I was ready at five, but okay. <laughs> and my child's uh, school, his program starts at three. So I never even oh. had that window. Nope. So uh, Papa did put his foot down on one point. The other old money families were sending their daughters to exclusive private schools. You know, Miss Gussie Woodruff's Dame School or the Margaret Booth School. But Papa was serving on the board of the Montgomery Public Schools, and how would that look? No. Bad. So she went to the grammar school behind the house, which was fine with her, you know, frankly. Zelda read a lot. Um, and like, oh, gosh, how often do we say this? She was allowed to read whatever she wanted. She had a fascination with Alice in Wonderland. She wrote it out as a kid. She wrote out the entire Alice in Wonderland. That's nice. a great way to practice your penmanship, I but guess. also Aristotle and Plutarch and uh, a lot of Civil War history. It was kind of an obsession of hers for a while. And any book her sisters left laying around and open. Who knows what those sisters were reading? <laughs> Dime novels. So she was very fascinated by all the books on the bookshelf, and she also took to visiting the Oakwood Confederate Cemetery, which many did. It was like a park. You'd take a picnic, and you'd take your family. Now, of course, I did, too, to a cemetery, but then again, I was a little punk rocker in high school, so I didn't go as a wholesome, you know. Oh, we used to go all the time. It was so pretty and quiet. Yeah. Mama got her ballet lessons at nine, which Mama was so excited about, A, the ballet, and B, the costumes. Mama loved to make costumes for this ballet class. Just to wear. I mean, Zelda would just be happy wearing like a sailor dress around all the time. But mom liked to sew and mom liked to make these great creations for her baby. 
And she taught her to sew, too. So it, it was a skill that came in very handy, I think. So off to the co-educational Sydney Lanier High School, where Zelda had a challenging set of courses. Math, English, geography, history, French, Latin, chemistry, English lit, physiology, where she kept a B average the whole time, a high B average, though she skipped a lot of class to go swimming or go to the movies. Yeah, it didn't sound like she studied really hard, which just tells you how bright she really was. So her debut, not an official debut, because, in fact, she never had an official debut, but kind of a more effective one, happened when Zelda was 15. She danced a solo in a ballet recital, which was to be followed by a community dance. So the whole community's in the audience. She was so beautiful with these blonde curls and her changeable eyes and her gracefulness that during the town dance that followed, she could hardly get around the floor once without being cut in on. And just like that, she was just catapulted into extreme popularity. You know, she loved being the center of attention. She was very articulate. She had a lot to say. She was very extroverted. And oh my goodness, look at all these handsome boys that are paying me attention. So let's just call these high school years hijinks ensue. So she's off to Harry's, the local ice cream parlor after school, where the thing to do is drink a dope, which is a Coca-Cola with an aspirin in it, which was supposed to get you high. And that is common in mythology, for sure. Even in the movie Grease, Grease, what is that, 1978? And there's a line that says, I caught Vince Fontaine trying to put an aspirin in my Coke backstage. Oh. And yes, yes, even by now, even by Zelda, the cocaine was out of the Coca-Cola. So it wasn't that. So it's an urban legend. I don't know. But in the interest of research, I tried it. I even went and got uncoated aspirin special in case that was. But I am feeling no awesome effects whatsoever. You just did this right now? Um, Probably 30 minutes ago. Oh, really? <laughs> and I tried it before. I tried it before. I was like, well, I don't want to, you know, ruin the recording if I really, something happens. But like, you know, I imagine if I had a headache, the caffeine might have improved the aspirin's effectiveness. I think so. And that might make you feel high and happy, maybe, if no, you had a headache. <laughs> that is a stretch. It's <laughs> a real stretch. Okay, then. But anyway, what followed here was an almost unbelievable fanfic level of popularity combined with a medium irresponsible level of parenting. <laughs> there is this horrifying tradition. I don't know. You tell me what you think. You have a daughter. It's called a subscription dance. So on the door of Harry's, the ice cream store, these guys would make a list of girls that should show up at this dance. Mm-hmm. And dudes would just sign their names like, this is the person I'm taking to the dance. So did the girls get asked? No, they did not. Their name's on the list. The dude signs his name. And I guess she could either decide not to go or to go, but like there's no other option. And if you're a girl and your name didn't appear on the list, you were not invited. And if you showed up, you were just pitiful. That's humiliating. Yeah, I can't. There's nothing on there that sounds good, even if I didn't have a daughter. (laughs) It's just not good. But she was on she was on the list every single day in time. Motorcycle rides and then um, boodling. Did you read about boodling? Yes, boodling at Boodler's Bend. It was like canoodling and necking. Um, But she was a regular at Boodler's Bend. And somehow that never tainted her reputation that never did stick but she shocked the town by swimming in what amounts to a flesh-colored leotard (laughs) (laughs) she loved swimming she had been swimming with the boys since she was really little she would jump off the highest highest point that she possibly could so here she's doing it in this skin-colored modern bathing suit scandal that's hilarious well (laughs) there was one little article i read that said the girls would come 
see Zelda at the dance and want to go home because there's just no competing. Like, dudes would line up across the room to dance with her for one minute. That's the level here. But she had a lot of girlfriends, and she was considered fun. She was considered kind. She was considered a lady, but madcap, I guess is the word that they used. She'd pin mistletoe on the hiney of her dress, like kiss my patoot. (laughs) I think that would draw people to her. I really do. You know, she was that brave one that did things that they could only maybe think of doing and never would. You know, maybe she enabled a lot of behavior in her girlfriends. Well, being in that kind of shadow is probably brighter than you would have had otherwise. Oh, sure. Sure. So she was definitely preeminent. A whole fraternity at Auburn University was created in honor of Zelda Sayre. It's called Zeta Sigma. Note the initials. Z.S. Uh, it was made up of men who had pledged an oath of devotion to her and had had their hearts broken by her. Mm. And the porch groaned under the weight of her suitors. To say she was an icon of Montgomery, Alabama is not to exaggerate. Mm. No, not at all. And when she would be out there kissing um, and her father had caught her, she would just laugh. Like he had no power over her. She was not as afraid of him as everyone else was. Plus, when you get to the last one, you're just too tired to summon up the full authority, I think. <laughs> and she'd climb out the window, etc. So what are you going to do? Yeah. She danced cheek to cheek. Yeah, she danced the, uh, what was it? The grizzly bear, which you saw in Downton Abbey. It's basically like a hug that you just walk around to. Scandalous. It is very scandalous. She would drink gin and orange juice with some sugar in it. I think that's called an orange blossom cocktail. See, look at you. I mean, I think there's something fancy in it now, but probably you didn't have the fancy bitters stores back in the day, you know? No. <laughs> so, um, okay, so there is a dark side. There is a dark side. Mm-hmm. I don't know that this has ever been 100% confirmed, but this golden era, you know, on the surface seemed to have no repercussions at all. Hmm. But there is strong evidence, because she writes very autobiographical fiction, That at some point she might have been a victim of one episode of sexual violence involving two of the town golden boys for whom there would at least be sympathy and and probably disbelief if she ever told on them. Um, She refers to it strongly in her second book, Caesar's Things, which was pretty autobiographical. And um, the, the end of the description of that says... Um, For many years afterwards, she didn't want to live, but it was better just to keep going. Yeah, Um, I read that in a couple places, so I think it's probably true. But her personality kind of changed a little bit after that, where before she was just fun. And now she was fun, but she wanted to be in control of the relationships. You know what I mean? She wanted Mm -hmm. to be the one that dictated how things were going to go on from here forth, you know? She, it didn't slow her down as far as her dancing and her canoodling, but um, I think it changed her attitude. I mean, why wouldn't it? There's a grim shadow is all I'm saying. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. she couldn't share that with anyone. So let's just file that away as another part of the story that's in the background kind of ticking away. War began during Zelda's senior year in high school. And since the Wright brothers had opened a flight school just outside of Montgomery, their facilities, like their runways and all the storage they had and the mechanics and everything were right there. The air depot for aviators was located there. It was just it just made more sense. And so Camp Sheridan uh, nearby was filled with 20,000 soldiers and sailors from all over the country. Zelda and 20 or so friends embarked on sort of a vaudeville circuit. 
in a troupe called the Jelly Beans. I don't know where they got that. And they entertained with song and dance numbers. And then officers, only the officers, were extended open memberships to the local country club. And then also the dances that were held there by, you know, the old guard of society. Now, Zelda had always been a really good student, but as her social life was amping up, her grades kind of started to fall a little bit and she limped her way to graduation. Now, even the graduation, she couldn't do it like everybody else. All the girls had voted to wear simple dresses. And there she comes. She shows up in this white silk dress with a chiffon tunic over it and long ribbons down her back, which was not what the girls had agreed on. And when it came time to sit with her class, she didn't. She decided to go sit in the audience. I think they might have made her sit in the audience. (laughs) And she thought that was great. Yeah, she didn't really want to be there anyway. So at one of the dances, now that, you know, we've graduated from high school, we're women now, uh, it was one of these dances that the 17-year-old Zelda met First Lieutenant Scott Fitzgerald, who was astonished at her popularity and was startled that his legendary, maybe in his own mind, charm, did not seem to be operating properly. He threw out the lure, can I see you tomorrow? And she just laughed and said, I don't make dates with fast workers. Hmm. Sure she doesn't. (laughs) He was a first lieutenant. I mean, he was an officer, right? He's wearing a Brooks Brothers designed uniform, which wasn't what everybody else had on. He had on boots and spurs. He had to stand out a little bit as being kind of quirky. Well, and he had very pretty good looks. He had very shiny golden hair that was very fashionably dressed. Um, he he looked like he was related to Zelda. They were both supremely attractive in that way. Oh, would you call those bedroom eyes that Scott Fitzgerald has? <laughs> I can't. Mm, spoiler alert for later. I can't. Scott has no attraction for me whatsoever. And, uh, he actually wasn't very tall. This was this totally surprised me. He was only five seven, which for a man is not very tall. That's true, I guess. Hmm. Height aside, they were both so supremely, I want to say egotistical, but at this point, I think I'm going to say self-confident. But as far as their roles went, at least Zelda was the real deal. I mean, I'm talking the aviators used to buzz her house and waggle their wings. Uh, until they crashed. Until they crashed. So <laughs> dudes crashed planes over her. You know what? The, one of the dudes that crashed the plane, she had kissed him just because he had a mustache. Like, she wanted to see what it felt like. So she kissed him. So they began seeing more and more of each other. He had an inner voice that she really liked. He had some uh, exoticness that she really liked. She heard the word Princeton and thought, oh, oh, ho. You know, she heard the Yankee voice and he wasn't the boy next door that she'd known her whole life. No, he wasn't anything like the boys that she had known her whole life. You know, he was Minnesota raised. His real name is Francis Scott Key Fitzgerald. He was named after his second cousin, three times removed, the writer of the Star Spangled Banner. So, I mean, he was the son of a fairly unsuccessful businessman father and a fairly moneyed mother. He did begin writing early in life. He wasn't a great student, but he just kept writing. He liked to write um, detective stories. Um, his parents thought, They were in St. Paul, and they thought that maybe a strict environment of a Catholic boarding school would help him out. So they sent him off to New Jersey, and academically, he did good enough to get into Princeton, but not stellar. He wasn't, like we've said, he wasn't the greatest student. At Princeton, he was able to write some more. 
Well, and he got so much acclaim as a writer, his extracurriculars were so big that his actual studies suffered, and he actually got booted. What Scott really did like at college, in addition to writing for the campus literary publications, was that he social climbed pretty well. He liked being involved in the culture of privilege that he was surrounded by at Princeton. I know he was embarrassed by what he considered his vulgar mother. She didn't have any breeding. She had she had the money, though. And people are saying, look, in St. Paul, money can get you into the exclusive clubs. He just liked to be difficult and make it hard on himself and pretend he was an outsider. Because, in fact, in St. Paul, money equals you get in the end. So at home, he wasn't an outsider, but he just liked to, I don't, I don't know. He liked to victimize himself. I don't know why. But yes, when he got to college, he saw the real deal. That's who he liked to hang out with. The top girls and the moneyed scions of families, I guess. Well, he thought he was going to be hanging out with the football team because he had these aspirations to be the big man on campus and play football. But unfortunately, that I have nothing against five foot seven men at all. I've dated several in my life, but it was that height thing not really good for football (laughs) so um so when he got booted from princeton although he lobbied successfully i might say they had originally listed it as academic dismissal and he got it changed to medical so it wouldn't look as bad (laughs) yeah he's a talker so okay he never was sent to europe because the armistice was signed so all his training was for naught in the service but They did start a relationship. It is so confusing. So we are now entering into this confusing period I call the first engagement. Oh, yeah. Where neither of them stopped dating other people, but each sort of made the other the number one candidate. So Zelda was referred to as his top girl while he was simultaneously dating and having actual full-on affairs with people she even knew. Though he kept his thing secret, you know, and she... Wrote to him all about who she saw, etc., which made him insane with jealousy, which may have been the whole point. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I think, do you think? <laughs> so he had gone off to New York to try to make good so that he could ultimately marry her because she, in a very cagey way, I mean, when you're a girl and your whole fate depends on someone being able to support you, he didn't have any prospects. He wanted to be a writer, but he had no successful novel. Scott regarded it as mercenary but i'm like that is just practical you can't hitch your wagon to the dreamer star part of me wants to think that she wanted to see him succeed on his own i mean yeah it was about money sure there was a certain level that she needed to be kept in the style in which she was accustomed you know and he had talked about being this famous writer so she wanted to see him put his money where his mouth was you know and do it So he went off to New York City and got a job as a copywriter at an ad agency where he really felt like he was working uh, working beneath himself and wrote her letters every day. You know, she'd write him, oh, I saw so-and-so and and -and so-and-so, and I went swimming, and we did this, and we did that. And he would write to her about, I wish they still kept princesses in towers like they used to. Over and over, that phrase kept repeating. and, And finally she was like, can you stop with the princess in the tower thing? And then she said... Not reassuringly. Look, if I wanted to kiss somebody, I would, but I don't. So there, write less often so you can be more original. <laughs> I cannot, oh, knowing him a little better, having researched, I can see that's not going to go over well. She no. um, got his ring. He wrote to his mother, please send me your ring. I'm going to ask someone to marry me. And on March 22nd, 1919, she has the ring. 
And she would write to him saying she looks at it a thousand times a day and it's causing a commotion at the country club. The fact is she kept it in a box on her dresser. Nobody ever saw it. So Zelda made an error. She went to a party in Atlanta and came back wearing another man's fraternity pin. Oh, wait, I'm engaged. (laughs) I better give this pin back. Do you have this? No, I don't. Oh, my goodness. Okay. A sitcom error. I have error in quotes of Mm -hmm. sending the Atlanta man the note for Scott. Oh, yes, I do have that. And sent Scott the pin and the apology note. Really? Really? You did? Because that was so on purpose. Do you not think that was on purpose? I totally think it was on purpose. Because she would have loved to see Scott get all jealous and enraged. She was playing his emotions so good. Why is this even fun? Well, understandably, Scott got on a train to come down and sort this out. He was never comfortable with her friendships with men and not happy with her casual attitude toward everything. And even I think that pen was too much, I might say. (laughs) He came down and he demanded they get married immediately. In the ensuing rage-filled argument, she returned his engagement ring and he went back to New York. And he went on this this three-week drinking bender and one of the sources I read said he only stopped because Prohibition started. <laughs> and I'm not he, sure the dates match, but I like that kind of exaggeration. Yeah, no kidding. He, he was handling it really well. He said, I wouldn't care if she died, but I couldn't stand her to mar- have married anyone else. Blur. <laughs> Okay. Well, he quit his job, or they quit him. I don't even know. After a three-week drinking bender, I don't think it really matters who quit to. Yeah. Uh, and he went back to St. Paul and put his head down and he wrote he wrote his first book, rewrote a draft more like that had kind of been to the same publisher a couple times. They're like, show's promise, redo, show's promise, redo. So he added the Zelda elements. Whatever emotion he put into his pen must have worked because Scribner decided to take his first book, which is This Side of Paradise. And then a, he wrote I'm the thing to the motorcycle. I know. And he wrote them, like, because I'm sure they're totally going to listen to this. Please hurry. I have so many things dependent on this success, including, of course, a girl. A girl who helped write this story, even though she doesn't really know it yet. Scott used pieces of her letters and honestly, her diary word for word in his book, his published book. Yeah, it's right there. And so when Zelda read it, her response was, why can't I write? This book is very fine. And then he said, well, you inspired it. And I think this must be Scarlett O'Hara's Southern Wisdom or whatever. And she said, I'm so nice to feel like you can do things, anything, and I can help you just a little. Hmm. Just a little. The book deal had opened up other gates for some of his other work. He was starting to get published in magazines. He's going to be this famous author that he'd always said he was going to be. And finally, he went down there and said that they could make a success of it. And she was ready to get back on track with him. Well, and it seems, this is what it seems like from here. And keep in mind, everybody's very young. But it seems like Scott wanted a trophy to prove to the other men that he was worthy. He always had this complex that he wasn't worthy. And it seems like Zelda wanted a ticket out of Montgomery and mm-hmm. exposure to some people and places that could give her a name for herself because, you know, Tallulah had gone on to stage and screen. Right. She said she had this just vague ambition to be somebody and she'd never explored it and she'd certainly never been encouraged in it. But some little spark thought, you know, if I'm near it, it'll hit me, this magic or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, Zelda had actually written when she was in high school. She had had a um, a uh, short story called The Iceberg published. 
it was in a school literary magazine, but she had done writing before. So now that she's kind of, you know, going to be hitching her wagon to a writer, maybe, you know, that's a creative pursuit that perhaps she can follow. So they're formally engaged. And even the judge was reluctantly on board now. Scott's stories were being snapped up as fast as he could write them. They had a pregnancy scare. So evidently, boodling has happened, (laughs) in which Scott mailed her some abortion pills. There were many, many brands, some quack, some very likely not. If you recall from the Lydia Pinkham episode, Lydia Pinkham was accused of being such. Although it was proved that it wasn't. But, you know, Chickster's Diamond, Tansy Penny Royal Compound, and uh, you would know them by the fact that they warned, will cause miscarriage. Caution. Do not take if pregnant. I mean, that's your little code word there. To take if pregnant, yeah. Anyway, Zelda didn't take them, and it was a false alarm anyway, but Scott thought they better hustle on this wedding thing if this sort of thing was going to come up. And this something worries me. There's a letter from this time that Zelda wrote to him that I thought, mm-mm, this is a, mm. I do want to marry you, even if you think I dread it. I wish you hadn't said that. Red flag! He He's a loose cannon. I don't know. <laughs> but his novel was published in late March of 1920. And a week later, Zelda donned a midnight blue suit and hat. She carried a small bouquet of white flowers to the vestry of St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York. And they were married in front of Zelda's three sisters and three friends of Scott's. So when Zelda's wedding finally came, don't you think like back when she was the Belle of Montgomery, her wedding, her mythical imaginary wedding Mm -hmm. was probably looked forward to in society in Montgomery as one of the social events of the season. Don't you think the Belle of all Bells off the markets? Probably in Zelda's mind too, honestly. Well, yeah. And I wonder if she like, yeah, we're going to get married at St. Patrick's Cathedral. Sweet. In the rectory. They can't get married <laughs> in the cathedral because she's not Catholic. Right. With neither set of parents. Nope. None of her friends were invited. Only one of his Princeton friends. Um, Zelda's three sisters were invited. But Scott was so impatient to get this over with, he made the guy start without Clotilda and her husband. <laughs> and instead of having a lunch planned... Or anything. He just, okay, the wedding's over. He just took his new bride off to the Biltmore and her relatives are just standing there. Yeah, so, like, so no mad. Cake, no punch, nothing. So one of the sisters, Rosalind, was the maddest. Like, seriously, she was like, this was, mm-mm. She arranged a family lunch without the bride and groom. And she really seriously blamed Scott from this moment mm-hmm. for Zelda's mental state from here on out. Like, he has ripped her from her family and her ways and her culture and... She was very unhappy with how this tacky thing had happened. And Scott, who had this weird resentment against pretty much anyone that was comfortable in their social position, wanted to – what did he want to show? That he had contempt for her family, I guess? I mean – and I'm afraid for his wife too. I, I'm feeling well, – He's in control now. This is this is my woman. She's, you know, she's with me now. Say goodbye. Uh, so I think it's time – On this note, oh, this down note to take a little tiny break. And when we come back, let's see how our ominous feelings are going to work out.
Now, before we begin with the rest of this story, I, at least, would like to give you a disclaimer. In our reading on Zelda and Scott, there are definitely Team Zeldas and Team Scots. It's inevitable that Scott biographers view Zelda as a monster and him as a martyr and Zelda's the reverse. There's so much. He said, she said, please forgive us if we tip over one way or the other. We've tried to keep this balanced. But I will tell you, <laughs> at one point, before I read an F. Scott Fitzgerald biography and got a little balance... I was so uh -huh. mad at him that I actually went and poured a drink. <laughs> kind of fitting, you know. I, oof, I've gotten a little bit better. Going around town going, did you know that F. Scott Fitzgerald was a jerk? <laughs> well, and you know what? That's actually good cocktail party conversation. So, But anyway, just so you know, sorry if, if we aren't as balanced, but we have really been immersed in Zelda biographies and Zelda biographies um, are more kind to Zelda. So the end. Okay. Honeymoons are supposed to be a time for couples to be together, to get closer, to cement their new relationship. But the Fitzgerald honeymoon was weeks and weeks of notoriety and gin. That's a great way to put it. Well, I mean, you know, and there was something, there was something so innocent at the core about them. Their kind of bad behavior, their golden, glamorous good looks, it excuses a lot. I'm telling mm -hmm. you. Half of Princeton was drinking cocktails in their suites. Zelda dove fully clothed into the Washington Square Fountain. Scott took his clothes off at the theater. They rode down the streets of New York City on the top of a taxi, which is where they met our old friend, Dorothy Parker, from episode 55. Yeah, Dorothy was <laughs> astonished. She wasn't really a big fan of Zelda, but she did say that the both of them look as though they had just stepped out of the sun. Their youth was striking. And the really worst thing she ever said was that she had she looked like a candy box top. Is that the worst you can come up with? This is Dorothy Parker. I guess she could have come up with a whole lot worse. So obviously it wasn't. Yeah. She didn't irritate the crap out of her. She could have run with that, I think. Yeah. But um, so the Fitzgeralds ran around the revolving door at the Commodore Hotel for half an hour once. <laughs> I had a four-year-old that did that once. Maybe <laughs> For half an hour? <laughs> Uh, not half an hour, just as long as I could stand it. That's a break, you know? It's a break. Yeah, no one's okay. mad and no one's coming in and no one's hurt by it. You know, just let them run in. <laughs> they were approached, these glamorous, glorious people, to perhaps be in a movie, star in the movie from this side of paradise, his book. And that was never shot, but they were approached as the ideal. Of course they were, because it was them. It was her diary and his story <laughs> mixed together. And they were on the cover, so who else would it be? And almost to a man, Scott's Princeton friends started out mocking Zelda for her accent and her airheaded ways and ended up worshipping her. They'd call her barbarian princess or talk to her while she was in the bathtub. And but she was now, she was protected by marriage. You know, she could flirt as much as she wanted to, but she had a husband. So it was just her being, you know, an old married lady flirting. She didn't have to act on it. Quotes from his friends at this time. I have mm -hmm. rarely known a woman who expressed herself so freshly and delightfully. I've often thought that Zelda did more for Scott than he did for her. I've often seen him secretly write down things she says on scraps of paper or the backs of envelopes and put it in his pocket. Meanwhile, they thought that Scott was pitiful and grasping. Oh, snap. So if Zelda's there, Scott can't work, he says. But if she's out, he's worried what she might do, which seems to me like his problem rather than hers. I mean, he knew he married a flirt. That was just her way. Uh-huh. 
So to pay her back, he had two affairs. One with Tallulah Bankhead's sister, Eugenia. Well, that will put a halt to some of your gallop. What? <laughs> she didn't even do anything. Uh, so She was he, just being the woman that he married, you know, that he was attracted to. Yeah. So mm. he said in not so many words, you're my muse and you're no more, which seems very frustrating for a woman with brains. But this doesn't seem healthy to me. <laughs> So, you, are you just thinking it's not healthy? No. <laughs> this is the edge of the tip of the iceberg of my rage, so I'm tamping it down. Okay, okay so <laughs> they decamped to a retreat in Connecticut so that Scott could write, um, where they lived out these two views of themselves. They were glamorous, beautiful people who loved each other and supported each other versus simultaneously people who fought bitterly all the minutes of every day there was high drama manufactured or not dramatic walkouts disappearances epic tearing of hair and despair on scott's part one of their friends years later wrote a story in which he based some characters on the fitzgeralds and he said of the characters they cling to each other like barnacles cling to rocks but they want to hurt each other all the time they love each other desperately and passionately it's a book, uh, Parties, by an author named Carl Van Vechten. So just like on their honeymoon, the the liquor was still flowing. You know, Scott drank a lot and Zelda drank a lot. It was just a lot. There was a lot of partying going on in Connecticut, which was supposed to be this place that they were supposed to go to so he could write. No one made him party. That's what I'm saying. Oh, no. Nobody except his alcoholism made him party. Oh, he did have he did have a problem, but not quite a big problem yet. No, it started in college. I mean, like it does with a lot of people amping up in his 20s like it does with a lot of people. And a lot of people usually stop at some point. That's true. That is true. These people have not stopped yet. Mm -mm. They bought a car uh, and went to visit Montgomery in matching white knickerbocker suits, which was very good optics, as they say on Madam Secretary. Good optics. <laughs> which shocked the rural South to the point where they got barred from at least one hotel. A woman in white knickerbockers, like, put one's back of one's hand on the forehead. It, shock. Yeah. But word went out in Montgomery that Zelda was back and the yard just filled with cars. And so Scott was simultaneously pr proud and angry. I think he needs to get a handle on this. I think this is also the trip in which <laughs> Zelda made Papa so angry. I think she was defending Scott for something that he chased her around the dining room table with the carving knife. <laughs> I think there was a lot of chasing by the judge during Zelda's upbringing. It keeps him physically fit. Yes. So a return visit by her parents, however, ended up with, you know, embarrassing drunken friends drinking gin and tomato juice in the house. Zelda with a black eye. Zelda with a black eye. I'm saying that mm -hmm. again. From a door. Is this where this came from? I mm -hmm. ran into a door. Mm -hmm. And her parents left to go stay at her sister's house. And it's in that dismaying state of events that on Valentine's Day in 1921, age 20, Zelda was delighted to discover that she was pregnant. And she was not exactly one to do things traditionally. So she didn't want to hide her growing belly. Um, she swam and she showed off her curves. She danced as much as she could, which was a lot. She got kicked uh, out of the municipal pool, by the way. Yeah, because you can't. <laughs> she could think she can show off her curves, but just because. I mean, there were children present. I know. There's a pregnant belly right there. Heaven forbid. Um, She thought that giving birth someplace beautiful would be best. So they thought maybe London. London's beautiful. So they booked a trip 
this is kind of like the beginning of their vagabondy kind of years. It's mm-hmm. how I see it. Mm-hmm. Um, but London just didn't seem like the glamorous place that she had hoped. Even though they had dinner with Lady Randolph Churchill. That's Jenny Jerome, uh-huh. Gilded Age heiress from episode 10, mother of Winston Churchill. That's not glamorous enough. That's not glamorous. <laughs> Who's from New York? I mean, I know. I know. Nope, not good. Not good enough. So they went back to the States and they went to St. Paul for her to finish out the misery of her pregnancy. Well, because Montgomery was just too hot. And, you know, pre-air conditioning, I'm with you. Yeah. Montgomery is going to be too hot. So Zelda, seven months pregnant uh, in a town where she knew no one, was pretty miserable I have to say, Scott kept calling her fat and mentioned her weight a lot, which is probably because he did not have the internet and didn't realize that was not what one does. (laughs) Okay, sure. (laughs) She helped Scott with his work. Um, She was always a really good editor and a a collaborator. He actually valued her advice and took her advice and wrote to his editor about, oh, Z thinks this passage and I'm with her and this kind of thing. Um, But when she noticed a phrase or whole paragraphs that had been lifted from her diary or from her mouth and objected, so rather than apologize or in fact rather than stopping, which would have been preferable, he had stationery printed up that had at the top F. Scott Fitzgerald, hack writer and plagiarist, St. Paul, Minnesota. It's actually kind of funny. (laughs) It is super funny. And in the context of like a funny relationship, which this may still have been, that actually is kind of funny. Like you said. Yeah. It's not going to be funny later, but it might be funny now. He was being pretty open about it. He wrote, her ideas are largely in this new novel. He meant the beautiful and the damned. Like, for example, in a letter to his publisher, he wrote, I'm just enclosing to you the typing of Zelda's diary. You'll recognize most of the dialogue. Don't show it to anyone. (laughs) The beautiful and the damned was a story about a couple and their failing marriage. Um, and it looked an awful lot like the Fitzgerald marriage in a few years if it had continued in the manner in which it had begun. You know, and having her dialogue in there, I, that must have been weird for her, you know? I know. <laughs> oh, yeah, weird. It's like surreal, kind of. Yeah. yeah, oh, yeah. Well, when Zelda was asked to review this book for the New York Tribune, uh, you know, the guy thought it was funny to have the original flapper take him down. If there's digs in it, the better, you know, hooray. And it's telling that she included the phrase, Mr. Fitzgerald seems to believe that plagiarism begins at home, which amused him rather than angered her husband. That seems kind of more scary to me, actually. I know. (laughs) But it focused the glory back on him. um, And it was about him and it was in jest and everyone knew that it was ha ha funny because it's the first flapper and, and it was okay. It was fine. But I am jumping ahead a touch. Let's, we need to go back because she can't be pregnant forever. No. <laughs> um, we need to go back for just a second to the baby, little Francis Scott Key Fitzgerald. They called call in letters Patricia by her mother. For I know. They wanted to call her Patricia first, but then they switched at the last minute. I don't know why. But her mother always called her Pat. Mm-hmm. So I guess maybe Zelda wanted to call her Patricia and Francis Scott Fitzgerald wanted to call her Francis Scott Fitzgerald. <laughs> Oh, there you go. Well, we know her as Scotty. That's pretty cute. Yeah. Henry the cat was Frank for a week anyway. So you can always change things names. I'm sure. So Scott, during the birth, was wandering around with his notebook, writing down all the curses that came out of her mouth. And she's like, what are you doing? And he goes, this could be useful. (laughs) You know, like he'd never seen a birth scene. What happens during a birth scene? And so when her daughter was born, 
She said, isn't she smart? I hope she's a beautiful little fool. That's the best thing a girl can be in this world, a beautiful little fool. So if you've seen or read Gatsby, you know that he did recycle that statement. Although not immediately. It was a good line. (laughs) Well, based on the good reception of the review she wrote, Zelda and all their connections among the people in the know, the Fitzgeralds dropped in at the Algonquin now and then, for example, Mm -hmm. Um, McCall's magazine commissioned some articles from Zelda about flappers. They wanted to know what they were, and she defined them. She defined what a real one versus a wannabe was. Um, and it was a kind of the way she would began to get her own literary voice. And they were probably meant to be regarded as fluff pieces, but they had some kind of touching and revealing elements about courage and a woman who defied expectations or that women should experiment because the world plans to force them into any one of a number of bitter little boxes. So they better experiment while they're young. So I'm not going to keep harping about this, but I'm going to place this here as something that's going to be an undercurrent of the whole rest of the story here. Scott drank so much, I can hardly believe it. (laughs) Whole bottles of gin with breakfast, often nearly blackout drunk. And he thought he was wittier and people liked him more after he was a little loosened up. You know, Zelda 2, they both showed up places kind of already in 3 a.m. mode. So they'd have one drink and go to sleep on somebody's bed at a party. Because they'd been drinking since the morning. Zelda once, cutting down, kept this Bridget Jones-like alcohol unit list for a while. And cutting down satisfactorily to her meant eight alcohol units, some before breakfast. I mean, look, we've all been to college. I know. (laughs) But come on. I mean, you want to remember some of your 20s, right? Yeah. Well, expenses were such, bootleggers bills for one, that to save money, they decided to move to France. Um, Now, I read here, I cannot believe this figure, so I'm going to doubt my own figure, but I read that Scott made $36,000 one year and they couldn't make it work, to which I'll play the small violin because it... In my historical currency calculator, that translates to a half a million dollars. And I, I'm like, surely that can't be right. No, I think it's right. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, anyway, the Great Gatsby is not going to write itself. So they're off to the south of France where Scott buckled down. And he told Zelda, no bedroom stuff till I'm done. Biz. Okay, fine, whatever. <laughs> is that what you, you're not giving? You're not giving drinks up, but that's what you're giving up. Okay, that'll help a lot. I'm sure that'll help you a lot. So Zelda hung out with little Scotty, which is something to be noted. Zelda's perfectly able to take care of her child. Even though I reported that they um, tried to bathe Scotty in the bidet when they first got to Paris. But it, but think about what size and shape the bidet is. I mean, yeah. assume someone's cleaned it. It's perfect. You don't have a kitchen sink in a hotel. True. And you don't it's- have those modern plastic things that you put. It seemed, I mean, to me, I was like, that's not actually a big mistake. That could be like literally on purpose. Yeah. Okay. I'll accept that. I read it was like, oh, really? Nasty. But I, I, I'm, I'm going to switch my opinion. Well, I mean, I don't know. It could be either one. I don't know. But, you know, it's... And if you stuff. don't... I mean, did they have a lot of bidets over here? No. Ever? I mean, had they ever run into one before? I don't know. There's well, no, there was one incident where they thought she was drinking lemonade and it turned out to be gin and lemonade. Now that you can point your finger at as a yeah. bad situation. <laughs> but everyone there thought it was a mistake because there was a glass of lemonade. Right. But she just happened to drink out of the wrong glass. And she was like three. That's bad news. 
should we just say that she doesn't grow up as bad as you think she's going to? Oh, no, she really doesn't. It's kind of shocking. Well, you know what, though? Zelda used to make them matching dresses, and she used Mm -hmm. to read to her every night. I mean, she has this reputation for being the absolute worst parent. But I have to tell you, right now, she is far from it. Far from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you read a lot of, I think, in the uh, the pro-Scott material that she was just a playmate to Scotty. You well, know, what's wrong with that? I mean, like. there's a nanny to be the disciplinarian. <laughs> Why take it up if you don't have to? You've yeah, I think it one. meant like she just played with her and that was it. She had no no hands on. It's like, oh, I had a couple minutes. I played with the kid and then I went on to, you know, get my hair finger waved or whatever. Well, Lady Mary Crawley is in the same exact position and everyone <laughs> thinks she's the best thing on TV. Yeah, she sends little George off a lot, doesn't she? And she does not play. So I think we're one up on Lady Mary right now. <laughs> So Scott's working. He's actually working. And some French aviators came to town and the group of friends that the Fitzes had made took them in, you know, evenings and days at the beach and whatnot. I just want kind of this vacation, just all languid and sunny. Can you imagine? So nice. Oh, nothing to do. Nowhere to be. Oh, yes. She began getting very close to one of them. Edouard Yozan. A person who made her very happy. A person who admired her wit who didn't put her down or push her away, and a person who flew his airplane over her house and waggled the wings like admirers gone by and didn't crash. (laughs) But suddenly, Zelda wasn't at the beach anymore. Suddenly, not at the parties, not in the village. Uh, Jozan, interviewed later, said he was bewildered and pretty sad, but his life went on, you know, and eventually he just transferred out and left the area. She's gone. She's not in their usual places. I guess we're done. You know, here's the theory. I, I have a know. theory that Zelda asked Scott for a divorce and he locked her in the house. Oh. The princess in the tower, you know. Yeah, I like it. I must have read it somewhere because I can't imagine I would have thought of that on my own. But because some later work refers to somebody being locked in against her will. She wanted to be somewhere and her husband wouldn't let her go and locked her up. Mm. So... Everyone was kind of thinking, they're brimming with life, these people, these Fitzgeralds. But is it play acting? Is it a little performance art? It was too good to be true, this whole golden, glorious family. But one thing we do know is a few weeks later, Zelda tried to kill herself with an overdose of sleeping pills. And a woman friend of theirs, not Scott, saved her life by walking her around and around to keep her from going to sleep. So Zelda, I don't know. Did she feel she lost her chance at true love? I mean, vacation things are something else. I mean. Well, you know what? If your theory was right that, you know, that he was that cruel, that he locked her up, she could get her hands on some pills. Maybe she's starting to see the writing on the wall with, that her future is not going to be this future that she had fantasized about you know she's the reality of living with this man was staring at her well and you know what get this though i think scott evidently felt that the gloves were off i mean i'm attributing a bad motive and i'll i'll walk it back in just a second so a story Mm -hmm. she had written based on Tallulah bankhead becoming a star i can't remember the name of it it's something like our best girl or our something it's like about a town being proud of a small town girl who made it big he sent it off and got it published under his own name and took the money Mm -hmm. now he either did it because of meanness, because, you know, he didn't know Tallulah Bankhead. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, she grew up with Tallulah Bankhead. So it was either meanness or the fact that his name honestly did carry more of a price tag. So, yeah, that's what I, that, you know, because I know that she helped him a lot with a lot of his work and that. 
things that she wrote did go in under his name um, because he got more money. And about the same time, he wrote to a friend that Zelda and I are truly in love and about the only happily married people I know. So perhaps you're right. Maybe it was expedient. But, you know, to take someone's story wholesale and I don't know. It's he's the breadwinner, you know, I, I, I'm i just playing devil's advocate. No, here. no, I know. I'm with <laughs> I think it's a terrible thing to do. But I mean, he's got to make some money. You know, their life is not cheap. Well, OK, so Zelda is seeing that Scott seems to be peeing a circle around writing for sure. <laughs> I have a friend like that. I I know what she's feeling. So Zelda is casting around for something to do to express herself. And she began to paint quite well, too. Kind of expressive and modernist. I mean, she is in that time and in that place. And yeah. they met Hemingway. And Scott, of course, just loved him. You know, the world's most fascinating man. Although not quite yet. He'd written something to the effect that when he admires a man, he studies him so we can become more like him. That is called single white female. <laughs> No, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Zelda saw another drinking companion. Huh, <sighs> great. And a phony is what she called him. She met Hemingway and said he was all bogus. I'm like, I kind of like her her cojones there. Yeah. Maybe he was bogus. Maybe he was play acting. Maybe it takes one to know one. But in return, Hemingway called her crazy. So I guess we have this label already. Yeah. So people only saw her responses to his, I have to say at this point, sometimes it got a little emotional abusey, though it might have just been how husbands were authorized to act at the time. Do you know what okay. I mean? Like, no, I do. Exactly. Yes. So her reactions seem out of scale. Um, like she threw herself down a set of stone stairs once to everyone's shock, but Scott's who laughed, you guys. Well, he was sitting there talking to Isadora Duncan. Isadora wanted some help writing her um, autobiography. And Scott was talking with her and he was being very charming and flirty. And Zelda saw it and just threw herself off the stairs. But people didn't think anything of it. It was like, oh, that's just Zelda. Well, and he's the famous one. He's in control of the story. He's the one who you want to network with if you're trying to get in with writing. If you want to get your name, like follow me on Instagram or whatever, you know, you don't talk to her. You want to talk right. to him. So Zelda is slowly becoming, quote, the reason he drinks in people's minds. Like, look at what that poor bastard has to deal with, kind of. Do you know what I mean? She's yeah, a little she's throwing herself, herself downstairs and she's she's drinking a lot and she almost drove their car off a cliff once. You know, yeah, I look, would drink I, too. Well, I will say there, okay, again, being fair, there is a long history of mental illness in Zelda's family. So this... Okay, we've got drinking being Scott's undercurrent. From now on, there's an undercurrent, a degree of mental illness, just maybe a natural tendency to manic depression, if you're thinking in modern terms. Mm -hmm. Compounded by unhappiness, I guess. I'm not a doctor, but I'm just saying that genuinely does run in her family. Yeah. It's there. I'm not denying it's there. Anyway, it's just nearly, this whole dynamic is nearly the most unfair thing I can think of. I'm, I was so mad. <laughs> <laughs> in my notes that I wrote, I'm so mad right here. And then I wrote, and I didn't intend to say, but I'm going to. I wrote, I have a situation at work. A confirmed narcissist is torturing me. So it's hitting a nerve. 
wrote that in my notes. And I have, I mean, seriously, underlined and four exclamation points. Like, so I, you I, think maybe you were uh, maybe attributing some of your your work narcissist qualities to Scott? I think so. Maybe that's why I drink. I don't really know. I don't. Well, I, I have a narcissist that I know fairly well, and I did exactly the same thing because I was like, oh, my gosh, I recognize that. I mean, I like the underlining kind of goes through the paper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Crazy. Okay. I wasn't that bad, but I have my note. This is rewritten. So maybe the first time around. I... <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. OK, so he uh, like, for example, he would yell at her because the servants didn't respect him when they literally just washed the vomit out of his shirt and put a blanket over him asleep in the yard. But it's Zelda's fault for being a horrible wife that the servants don't respect him. Yeah, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> Anything bad that could happen, he could trace it back to her. Yes. Well, Zelda began to suffer horrible abdominal pain, enough to have to have morphine shots in her stomach. So that's not pretending. You don't want a morphine shot in your stomach. Mm -mm. Stress may be endometriosis, my doctor friend says, maybe. Oh. There were lots of female symptoms. And I mean, that doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good. And it causes a lot of pain. And it's Mm -hmm. a lot of nebulous pain that people still don't respect even now, or they don't believe even now that you have it. So, well, Scott got an offer from United Artists to come write a a screenplay out here in California, which he jumped at, because why wouldn't you? That's the new media. That's where the action is. They settled Scotty with Grandma, Grandpa, F, and Nanny in Washington, D.C. You know, you don't want to take children on this adventure. And headed west, where the screenplay didn't get picked up, and Scott failed a screen test, and he taunted Zelda with his fascination with this 17-year-old actress. Lois Morant, who looked an awful lot like a young Zelda. And he kept saying things to her like, she's actually doing something with her life. Mm-hmm. And Zelda, in reaction, I don't know if this is like what she had control of, but she burned all the clothes she had designed for herself in the bathtub. You know what? We have seen that so many times in books and movies. Like something happens mm-hmm. and you burn whatever it is in the fireplace. Now, this is the 20s. This isn't the 1800s. There's no like convenient fireplace to burn whatever it is. I mean, even that vanilla movie becoming Jane Austen, Jane runs up in a tizzy and burns something in the fireplace because some guy said, he didn't like it. Do you remember that? Uh, no, actually, I don't. I'm just saying it's a very common. No, I actually the the picture that's in my head is um oh is it Stella got her groove back when she burned something? Oh, I didn't see that. Is that the one where she burned all the stuff? I think so. The guy's car. This is me off the cuff. I that's the only <laughs> image that was in my head. Well, and let me just say also that that seems card carrying crazy. But Mm -hmm. I've seen it before, and it must be a natural enough impulse that lots of writers have put it into their stuff. Because, I mean, I've seen it a lot. Mm. So I'm just saying. It must be. But um, there's some cute notes. Cute, cute, cute notes that she's been writing back to Scotty. Like, people go from one house to another eating till by nighttime you almost have to carry your tummy on a wheelbarrow. It's so full of cake and chicken salad. I'm getting to be very fat. That's cute. And you know what? If you read stuff about Scott, you know, all you read, there's a letter that he wrote to her or he told her, you know, gave her all this advice, Scotty. Uh-huh. Um, and that's what you that's if you look for things like that, that's what you see is that one. you don't see the things that Zelda was doing, like she was making paper dolls. You know, she's very artistic and she was making these paper dolls for her daughter. And she would do these epic birthday parties where she would basically set design the birthday parties. Oh, so good. Well, she was really good at throwing parties. That is true. By this point, she's had a lot of experience. (laughs) 
Well, so Scott had promised a book for years and years to his publishing house, and he was in debt because of it. They'd advanced him some money, and he was having trouble getting underway. So they rented a house, and uh, while Scott was coming to grips with Tender as the Night, is what it will be, and another truckload of gin, Zelda <laughs> decided to follow up on an old love, an old skill. Old. She's only 27. <laughs> old skill. She needed something of her own. She needed it. Uh, dance would be it. This is, he cannot object, surely. He cannot follow her into it. He cannot claim to be better. He saw her dance. That's how they met. The end. This was going to be her thing. So she began. And she probably thought back to when she was younger and how it made her, you know, how she felt like she was in control, but yet free. And it was artistic. Um, she did say that she was going to be a Pavlova and nothing else. And she was very determined. Well, she, yeah, she began serious ballet lessons and practice. And the only comment from the peanut gallery at this point was that her vintage mirror that she had bought in a very expensive store, by the way, um, mm -hmm. to hang over her ballet bar. It looked like a whorehouse mirror, he said. But whatever. Whatever, you. <laughs> you know, she practiced for up to 10 hours a day. Um, she slept with her legs through the footboards of her bed to try to get her them to turn out. Fall on training to be a dancer. Even little Scotty joined her sometimes. And I think that's a good picture. Yeah. If exercise is a good stress reliever. Maybe she has a lot of stress. I know. Well, and maybe it was like kicking up some endorphins. Yeah. You know, and that probably felt good. Okay, her teacher was a noted Russian ballerina, um, said she had great talent. And from a Russian ballerina, I think if she says you have great talent, you have great talent. As Zelda said, there's like six stars total in Russia. Nobody's going to be those six. Plus, I'm too old. That's fine. But I, if a Russian person of this quality says that I am good, I'm going to take that as really superior compliments. Yeah. Um, so she finished and sold four essays. So right now, Scott's in a little bit of a downturn with writing. Um, so she sold four, her style, less, more descriptive, maybe less blunt. She was talking about um, like the reflection of the pools in New York and the watercolor squares of grass and that kind of thing. They're really neat. Mm -hmm. But she's trying to create a space apart from her husband. She needs it. Her writing that those essays are paying for the dancing lessons and life. And it seems to me that even though people know, they know that Scott is face down drunk most of the time, somehow all these new articles and stories kept appearing with his name over them. Do you know what wow, I'm saying? Wow, he's a really brilliant writer to be able to write from that position. I don't know. And I'm not saying all Oh, the I know all the F. Scott Fitzgerald fans are going to write to me. <laughs> To you too. Well, and that's that's fine. He wrote lots of things. He wrote lots yeah. of good things. I yes. have had flappers and philosophers on my phone since the second that book app uploaded itself without my permission. <laughs> hmm. But anyway, I so I admired his work. I always like his realism. I like that he just tells the thing and doesn't go into too much description. Hemingway shares that with him. Don't like Hemingway as a man either. And I have to like a person to like their work. That's it. You know, sometimes his work was not his work. We know that now. It's all been ironed out. The right yep. names are on everything. Yep. So people around town kind of avoided them. And they blamed Zelda for not helping him. Like, look how wrecked up Scott is right now. <laughs> well, Scott's been blaming her for everything bad that happened. So why wouldn't other people jump on that too? That must be it. Well, and here when she wanted to have a discussion about writing with authors of their acquaintance, as one does because she views herself as a writer, he would bustle mm -hmm. her in a taxi and send her home. I think, like, don't talk about that. You know, yeah. don't talk about Fight Club, kind of. That's right. <laughs> the first rule of the Writer's Club. 
Yeah. Okay, so this I can't forgive him for, and this is documented. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. This is the first thing that I can't be balanced about. Okay. He punched her full in the face during her sister Rosalind's visit. Hard to forgive that. You have to leave him, said Rosalind. You have to leave him. You, Zelda said, have to leave me alone. I just don't know what the hold is. I don't know what the hold is. I know it's common enough, but she told her family she knows what she's doing and to leave her alone and don't talk about it. There you go. So Scott began to paint her dancing as obsessive and expensive and the reason he couldn't write anything and was believed. Someone told the press, someone, not Zelda, told the press that Hemingway and Scott were having a homosexual affair. So panic-stricken Scott spread the rumor that Zelda was a lesbian and was believed. So to him, she's not developing into her own independent woman. She's becoming depraved and he was believed. So the marriage is by now one long argument. He would goad her into coming out with him and she reported to the doctor that she used to have to physically hold on to chairs to prevent herself from running away. Just running, just getting up and starting to run. Here's a story that she wrote about this time. You know how autobiographical everything is and I, I don't know. Let's just read this. Bitter things dried behind the eyes of Miss Ella, like garlic on a string before an open fire. The acrid fumes of sweet memories had gradually reddened their rims until at times her eyes shone like the used places in copper saucepans. So, oh, for a person who could see what was happening. Some friends from back in the St. Paul days were there. Luckily, when Zelda finally did crack under the pressure and did actually open a cab door and start running, literally out of a cab and down the street. I'm glad, I, I'm glad, I guess, that people who hadn't seen her in a while were the ones that saw it because they were shocked at how different she'd become. Like, everyone else was kind of numb to it. Mm-hmm. Blind to it because she's, it's always, that's Zelda. That's the way she's always been. Yeah. yeah and, and they're like, she has to see someone right now, Scott. You have to take her somewhere. So after a rescue, followed by another suicide attempt and some PR that she has to go. I haven't written a word in 21 days, he said. <laughs> Whatever, dude, you know, you. how much gin have you drunk? But yeah. she was seen at a prestigious clinic in Switzerland called Valmont where the doctors literally, quote, saw no signs of mental illness but a definite problem in the relationship between the patient and her husband, probably of long standing, which is causing the patient a great deal of anxiety. Wow. You think? Yeah. But Scott didn't like that. No, he didn't. He was not satisfied with this diagnosis. He wanted her moved to a psychiatric hospital. And she was duly installed at, I don't know how to say it, Les Rives de Prangans. Uh, <laughs> All run- I wrote was psychiatric hospital in Switzerland. Okay. So you get more points than I do, that's for sure. Well, it was run by a doctor, Dr. Oscar Farrell, who was a psychiatrist, a very well-respected one, and a Freudian scholar who immediately diagnosed her with schizophrenia and began treatment. Now, at the time, schizophrenia was kind of a newish for the times diagnosis, and they used it to describe a broad range of issues. So what we think of schizophrenia, it was kind of like, you know what I thought about was the way that they called the hysteria. Yeah. You know, it was like a blanket diagnosis for a number of things. Schizophrenia was the same thing. And most people think she was more by modern definitions, uh, bipolar, if anything. Yeah, and here's what I don't understand. I I was reading some kind of current coverage of her case, and there's mm-hmm. no way to go back now because she's not here to examine, but right. they seem to think her symptoms, 
don't match the classic definition of schizophrenia. And Mm -hmm. there's supposed to be a period of observation of like half a year before a reputable doctor of today would even diagnose that anyway. Mm -hmm. So to go from the first doctor saying he sees no sign of mental illness, only a natural reaction to stress and anxiety. Mm -hmm. So to this immediate diagnosis of schizophrenia seems crazy to me. If you pardon the expression. I heard what you did there. Yeah. I know. I actually didn't mean that to come out. I caught it halfway. I was like, ah, but this doctor, this very doctor, this Dr. Farrell, much later told a Zelda biographer in the 1960s that he doubted his own diagnosis. I wasn't there. I'm not a doctor, but he is and he was. And he said that was probably the wrong diagnosis. So can we take a little break on that? Again, high note, we need to come up with some breaks that are a little more uplifting. I don't think we're going to be able to. Oh, <laughs> uh, you're right. All right. Well, um, on that note so to speak, we will take a little break. And when we come back, we will go through the end of Zelda and Scott's relationship. back. Zelda is in a psychiatric hospital and Scott was actually not allowed to see her for the first few months of her treatment but sure wrote to all his friends about her madness, her wild homosexual urges toward nurses. Where does this come from? Her escape attempts. um, She even tried to write and dance he said as if that was the worst thing and he accused her of violent timidity. So I would like to know what that is. Uh, Understandably though, Zelda was not happy with what was happening to her. Electric shock. They would give people malaria. So the fever would, I don't know, burn out the wrongness, laxatives, sedatives. They'd give her so much insulin that she would go into a coma. Have you ever seen that list? I mean, that it's debunked, but that list of reasons women were committed to mental institutions is like a meme. Uh-huh. It's been debunked. I mean, Snopes has a whole thing on it. I'll, I'll give you a link to it. But basically, it's women have forgotten their place. That's why they're here. They've forgotten their place. I'm not saying there's not some there there. I, I have to say again and again, there is probably some mental illness. This is not helping. No. Okay. Zelda developed severe eczema, which nothing seemed to be able to heal. It had always happened in times of stress before, and this was definitely a time of stress, but it got worse whenever Scott was due to visit. Though I have to say, she wrote cheerfully and coherently to her daughter. Scott and Zelda were writing letters. Sometimes I thought when I was reading these that they got along healthier in their written relationship than they ever did in person. I think it's more easy to edit when you have a piece of paper and you could rewrite it if it didn't come out right. 
Yeah. Well, they were, I mean, they would still be able to, they'd argue and then they'd blame and then there'd be some sweetness still in the letters. I don't know that if they were in person, they would ever get to that point. Scott was having kind of open affairs and, and I almost think not maybe on purpose, but his behavior in society was kind of shielded by this spin on her behavior, as he called it. Like, she's not available. Look what I am dealing with. Mm -hmm. I need to console myself type of thing. I mean, I don't know if it was even conscious, but this was, he brought one of his women to visit her once. (gasps) Why? What is the point? I can't even. Well, and the doctor meeting Scott... (laughs) says, you know, you should be seen for your drinking. (laughs) You're part of the problem. And Scott says, it's not your place to correct me. Which of us is worth saving anyway? Yeah. (laughs) Your bias is showing again, but yeah. He said it. I didn't say it. I know. That's right. So Zelda wrote to him from this place. Please help me. Every day more of me dies with this bitter and incessant beating I'm taking. You can choose the conditions of our life and anything you want. If I don't have to stay here, miserable and sick, please, please let me out now. Dear, you used to love me. And I swear to you that this is no use. That is so sad. (sighs) There were some people hearing Scott's stories, but they weren't in a position or even inclined to help her that said something like, who knows what the truth is with that guy? Or she's a victim of Scott's own delusions of life in a silk hat, whatever that means. We don't even know what the story is because of this guy and his reputation. Well, the psychiatrist decided that Zelda's devotion to the dance had driven her mad. Like that was the cause. Okay. And actually wrote to her teacher to ask her to send Zelda a discouraging letter, which she did not. Her letter actually praised Zelda's ability and her persistence, and that was very validating for her. Now, 10 hours a day is a lot. If you were a ballerina in a company, you would be practicing 10 hours a day. But you know what? I have a child who loves pro scooters, and if he could practice 10 hours a day, he would. But he has other things to do, and she didn't have other things to do. So... You know what I mean? I don't know. Yeah. So she had the time. So why wouldn't she? Yeah. She couldn't write because every time she wrote, Scott would either take it or put her down for it. So despite everything, and maybe due to the sheer relief of having been deprived of the company of her husband for so long, Zelda started to emerge back into the world. The hospital's only real diagnosis here is the patient has unreasonable ambitions and a feeling of inferiority toward her husband. Fair enough. That's She does. Yeah, that's way better than schizophrenia. So poor Scotty. I don't know what her head is filling with right now. I just don't know. So I'm glad she had nanny and I'm glad she had school as far as I'm concerned. And like you said, she didn't seem to be as touched by all this as you would think. Like she remembers her childhood as a golden period. But you know, maybe when you're little, you just don't sense the undercurrents. Yeah. And if everybody's nice around you and to you, you think it's all good. And Yeah. But she, you know what, um, it wasn't just the nannies that were helping to raise her. I mean, there was points where Scott would send her off to live with his parents or with family friends, you know, so she wasn't with them all the crazy all the time, mm. which probably helped a lot. Scott went to Hollywood again. And left her at her mother's house in Montgomery with Scotty. Mm -hmm. So she had a little um, idyllic break here. And she was very prolific in her writing. At least eight stories that are all lost now. I'm very sad. They're they're known only by the notes that the agent left in his his records. Mm -hmm. The stories are gone. Oh, somebody's going to find them. 
somebody's going to find him. <sighs> and she wrote a large portion of a novel when she was 31. Her father died during this period. Scott's still gone. Zelda handled many of the arrangements for his funeral. She took care of her mother. She made Scotty's Christmas this magical one. She didn't cook, because let's not get crazy, but she yeah, supervised <laughs> the cooking um, for Christmas mm-hmm. and was handling things pretty well. She actually helped her mom pack the house and move. Um, and when Scott came back, back came the eczema and Zelda asked to go to a hospital. Yeah. Maybe she's like, okay, the eczema's back. I'm starting to freak out again. And that's the reason. So I need to get away from it. Where can I go? Oh, let's go to North Carolina. But is he an irritant and a trigger? Can we agree? Oh, yeah. I, I'm not arguing any of that. Yeah. No. I mean, I don't think he's like, you know, he's just coming back for Christmas time. But still, I don't think he's meaning. He's not like, ha rubbing his hands together, like making a plan. He simply yeah. arrives. And I think that's enough. That's enough. <laughs> it sends her back. It's post-traumatic stress. I don't know. It's, he's just totally the trigger. Yes. That's it. You nailed it. So while she was at the Phipps Clinic, she wrote every day, and she wrote to Scott almost every day. She mm-hmm. finished her novel. She called it Save Me the Waltz and sent it to Scott's publisher behind his back. <laughs> oh, how about that? Um, the publisher actually kind of liked it. She had started, that was part of her therapy, though, was to write and to keep painting. Um, and she had shown part of the book to one of her doctors. And the doctor let Scott know that she was writing something, but didn't let on that it was this novel. And Scribner wanted to publish it. Oh, but, Scott was enraged. Because he got his hands on it and he saw what it was. And it wasn't just a story, you know, it was a semi-autobiographical story. And not only was was it the story about their relationship? But it was a whole bunch of material that he was planning to use for one of his novels. Yeah, he, he wanted he, dibs on it. He accused her of stealing whole passages from his book. Um, You've taken things out of my notes, he accused her. And she said, no, I've taken things out of my life. Those are my experiences, she said. And he said, I'm the writer. This is all my material. You are a third-rate writer and a third-rate dancer, and I will not be lowered to compete with you in this way. So he demanded large cuts be made in that book. That is, he made them. (laughs) And then the things that he had wanted to use in his book that he's been writing for four years, he went ahead and took out of Zelda's and put back into his own. Right. Like he wanted. Um, And he told her that she did not have his permission to use any of his life in her stories. So there we have it. Hypocrite much there, Scott? So Zelda actually apologized, though she was heard to mutter the words, my GD husband, to herself. (laughs) Um, And she also said um, that she didn't want to be just a complimentary intelligence. She would like to be her own person. I think uh, and sad is, is that her own person was lost so long ago. And she's not even that old. You know, she's just in her 30s. <sighs> Poor thing. Anyway, there is actually a taped conversation, a long taped conversation that the therapists at Phipps wanted to take between her and Scott so they could <laughs> review the dynamic and see what was going on. And they just kind of didn't interfere. They just let it go on. She says at one point, 
Listen, Scott, I am so GD sick of your abuse that honestly, I don't know what I'll do. One reason I have to do things behind your back is because you're so absolutely unjust and abusive and unfair that to go to you and ask you anything would be like pulling a thunderbolt down on my head. I would not ask you for five cents. And Scott says, you're useless, Zelda. That's what you want me to be, Scott. No, I don't. Zelda, well, what do you want me to be? And Scott says, I want you to do what I say. You've always known that, you guys. And then he brags to the doctor, I didn't say it. This is not me. This is not me saying it. This is not me making it up. He told the doctor, I can control her mental state with what I say. And he even had a script for it that he was willing to show the doctor. Don't you think that's... It's above and beyond... He's the one. They totally, I mean, switch places. Let her out. Uh, you know, uh, uh, uh. the doctors at this place removed him as any sort of boss of her treatment, probably based on that conversation. And so he had her released to live with him, which worked for a little while. And she began to paint again, flowers, fairy tales. She did that whole uh, Alice in Wonderland series at some point, the paintings. Do you know what I'm talking yeah. about? Oh, yeah, yeah, I do. I, I really love her work. I mean, it's so, it's, there's like the images are grotesque enough to keep it from being saccharine, but there's just these bright colors and, you know, it's kind of whimsical. And then you look and you're like, oh, that body is totally distorted. I love it. <laughs> I, I know. I think it's really good. There, you can see a lot of them. Uh, some, I don't know about the f- Alice in Wonderland ones. You can see her cityscapes. Art.com has acquired the rights to sell some of her prints. So you can mm-hmm. see at least the cityscapes on there. I didn't page down far enough to see if the fairy tale ones were on there or the Alice in Wonderland ones. But yeah, well, a lot of her work was done um, as therapy. And, uh, you know, she would she gave the canvases away to students so they could just paint over them, you know, a yeah. lot of them. And then after her death, a lot of them were destroyed by her family. Well, so Scott sent money for paint, um, although he said to the doctor, you know, she's because she's back. He they, you know, that won't last at home. Scott uh, sent money for paint and he said she's getting eight tenths of the family income right now. I'm spending this on paint. So if that's true, that's great. But I don't know how much Jen is. I know. <laughs> and you know what? Here's this. I appreciate that he worked to pay for her treatment. I do. <laughs> that is not fair on him because that is a big financial burden that he didn't think he was going to have to pay he thought he would have this madcap you know uh accessory he thought that's what it was going to be like and it's not like that and his illusions are dashed just as much as anyone else's and he did Mm -hmm. work very hard to pay for those bills right and and he paid for you know scotty she she went to private school she went to vassar he did pay for all that he worked like you said, really hard. And a lot of the time he borrowed against his future writing. So he borrowed from his publisher. So when he would actually turn in the book, he wouldn't get anything because he'd already been paid for it. And actually when Zelda's book, Save Me the Waltz was published, she didn't know it at the time, but any profits would go towards paying off his debt with Scribner. The book didn't sell very well. So that was a moot point. But um, yeah, he was always playing catch up. So let's let's give him some props for putting his nose to the grindstone for something he really did not want to be on the hook for. So right. So uh, even though he had been warning his wife, do not get as obsessive with painting as you'd been with dancing, or as that you pretended to be with writing. Uh-huh. 
That little dig. He organized <laughs> a show of her work, which she was actually allowed to attend. I thought it went really well. The doctor that came thought it went really well. It seemed like Dorothy Parker bought a couple of her paintings. She thought they were underpriced and felt bad. And so she bought the frames for more money, too. This same Dorothy Parker, who was actually slept with Scott Fitzgerald by now, by the way. Just so you know. Just oh, well, like, it was just a thing. You know Dorothy. Yeah, you know Scott. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Scott, I mean, I have to tell you, he liked her art so much. There's some lampshades that she had painted in their house. And one has, like, street scenes on it. And it goes around mm-hmm. in a circle, you know. And then the other one, there's, like, a carousel. Um, he liked those so much. And so did Scotty. Scotty wanted to take him to college with her. And he goes, no, no, no. Those will get wrecked up. you got to leave them here. You can't take them. Those are real special. So he liked the art, and it is really cool. And you can see Mm. at least the carousel one at art.com. I'm not sure if the other one has survived. But Zelda had a couple of blows, some big blows. Number one, her brother Anthony committed suicide. Mm -hmm. That is a big blow. Uh, A play she had been writing failed epically on the first performance, and she'd really been trying to keep it from Scott so he wouldn't mess with it, and I think that's probably to her detriment. They were really good collaborators. Mm Mm-hmm. And she oh, wouldn't yeah. let him see it because she was afraid he'd rip it apart and be mean again. So she never let him see it and it didn't go very well. And that ugh, felt bad. And then, worst of all, at least as far as she was concerned, Scott's book came out. Scott's book. The book he'd been working on. The book he took those segments out of her book to put in his. That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's called Tender as the Night. She just felt eviscerated. She felt humiliated. She felt shocked. She felt betrayed. It was enough like her that everyone that knew her would recognize that part of her. But then he added in these fictional elements, like that her father had abused her as a child, had molested her as a child. Right. Uh, So people wouldn't know what the difference. What was fake and what was was real. mm -hmm. She was horribly embarrassed by it. And um, (laughs) his advice was, don't read it again. Don't read it again. It refers to a lot of upsetting times and and those times are gone. So don't just don't read it again. Sure. Okay. I'll just forget that I read it in the first place. So whatever the cause, whatever the cause, the mental illness, the brother, the play, the betrayal. At last, we now have Crazy Zelda from Central Casting. Anything you can think of, okay, she now suffers convulsive therapy, which is a treatment so extreme that families had to sign a waiver before the doctors could do it. Treatments that caused the blood vessels of her eyes to blur, to all the blood vessels broke, so her vision would blur. Mm-hmm. She couldn't see, and uh, they also used, quote, the application of electricity. Of course they did. And sure, there yeah. were days she could play tennis. There were days she could go f- for walks or talk to people, and there were days she couldn't remember who she was. There were hallucinations. There's religious fervor. There's rage. There's suicide attempts. It's I, I don't know enough about psychology to say that, you know, that living like that is what made her crazy, you know? I just, I mean, I just think, ah, you can, can you imagine, though, being treated that way and you just really don't belong there in the first place? And then At suddenly least, you're there. And what can you do? Yeah, and you're, you're there. I mean, you're, you're, act, you act like you belong there because you've been there for so long. So the family begins to campaign to have... Hold on. Uh, there's a loud motorcycle, everyone. I'm so sorry. I probably won't even cut it out. There's a motorcycle. Okay, so <laughs> the family began to campaign to have her released to her mother's care. Rosalind, sister Rosalind, visited and was just alarmed at her state. Alarmed. 
alarmed. The family made the mistake of mentioning his drinking, for which he is very sensitive. You know how you write something like a letter when you're really mad and then you decide not to send the email? Right. You just write it for your own therapy? Yep. Okay, this is what he wrote. Oh, just wait for this. Okay. A $50 ticket to Montgomery would in some way purchase your eternal mental health. That's a proposition I will not debate. Do you think your mother cares or ever has cared about you? I never wanted the Zelda I married. I didn't love you again till after you became pregnant. This is the very questionable element that I bought and your mother asked to be given back. I'd like to discover the faintest basis for your family's accusation that I drove you crazy. That old witch drove you crazy. You were crazy in the ordinary sense before I met you. I rationalized your eccentricities and made a sort of creation of you. If it hadn't been you, perhaps I would have worked with more stable material. My talent and my decline is the norm. Your degeneracy is the deviation. Ouch. Dude. I mean, at least you didn't mail it. I know. No kidding. Everyone has a right to your feelings. But that it still exists, that he didn't, he didn't burn it, you know? So, um, this is probably the time to say that Scott died of a heart attack far away in Hollywood with his girlfriend, Sheila Graham, at her house, or was it at the malt shop? I'm not really sure. No, I think it was at their house. Yeah. After deaths, he left. You would think that this epic, famous, one of the best writers of his generation, a man who created a new movement in literature, you'd think he'd have a lot more money, but he didn't. He, I mean, he had worked hard to pay for all this treatment for her. Um, and he wasn't that good of a money manager, but he left about $35,000 and basically he left Zelda $1,200 a month in today's money, uh, Mm -hmm. in a trust. And some of Scott's business associates clubbed together to keep Scotty at Vassar till she graduated. So she's taken care of too. Right. One of the Mm -hmm. authors I read named Sally Klein kind of said it best, like her best friend and her worst enemy were both dead at the same second. That is a good way to put it. Yeah, he was only 44, and he died in 1940, so that's not very old at all. She didn't go to the funeral. No, and I think that disturbed a lot of people, but I just think she thought it wasn't going to be... She was in the hospital still, you know. Zelda, after Scott died, lived quietly enough in Montgomery. She's painting, painting, painting. She's got a series about cityscapes. She's got a series of biblical scenes. She'd gotten a little religious in the hospital this last time, and it seemed to give her some comfort. She painted this series of awesome historical paper dolls. It's amazing. And she began to write another novel called Caesar's Things, also pretty autobiographical. I guess you use what you have. There were a few interim episodes of returning to the hospital, but very briefly. Mostly, she just gardened and painted and kept to herself, though she really... Did go off the rails enough that Scotty didn't invite her to her wedding in case she might have one of her eccentric moments. But see, insulin treatment, the going into a coma treatment really damages a person's memory and kind of changes their personality a little bit. Well, not only that, all the treatments she was getting. Yeah. You know? So time passed and her daughter had some children. And after the birth of her second, Zelda wrote to Scotty and said that she hoped that she would be able to see her soon. But the very next night, a kitchen fire broke out at the Highland Hospital where Zelda was staying. She was sleeping in her room on the top floor and she had been locked in for the night. The next day, she was identified only by a slipper that was found in the room. She was buried next to Scott in Rockville, Maryland at 48 years old. And her mother, upon hearing the news, ordered someone to go outside to the garage, get all of Zelda's paintings 
that always disturbed her. She thought they were dark. She thought they were disturbing. She wanted someone to burn them one by one in the yard. One by one so you could make sure all of them left. You know. Mm -hmm. Scotty, later, had to petition the Catholic Church to have her parents moved to the Catholic cemetery where they are now because uh, Scott was viewed as a lapsed Catholic and they didn't want him in their cemetery. But finally, Mm -hmm. they have been moved. They are together. And um, Scotty had engraved upon the gravestone the final line of Great Gatsby, which is... So we beat on, boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. So what do you what do you say in closing? I'm all empty. I mean, Zelda and Scott, would, would they both have been better off without each other, I think? I mean, imagine if Zelda had instead married a rich Montgomery boy she'd known since seven, when she mm-hmm. went to school for the first time, and she lived a life of ease as an eccentric housewife. I mean, artistic, maybe, with a lot of servants, probably a lot of children. Yeah, she, maybe she would have been those one of those women, you know, the, the silver hair that are out painting in their backyard. Oh, maybe she would have been like a Beatrix Potter, you know, painting all day. And she just was given no opportunity to live a genuine life. I mean, she chose it. She chose yeah. to go to New York and she chose to become the darling of the jazz age. For right. a while or whatever, but I, you know, I don't know. And then, w- what would Scott have done? Gone to Hollywood and made it? Maybe. I just don't know. His fiction is so bound up in his twenties lifestyle and in Zelda. I just don't. So know. would he have found another person that worked like her? I. She was very unique, you know, even for modern times. You know, the way she looked at life and that her her energy before. I'm talking before the bad stuff started happening. She was so unique that he couldn't have found somebody that was like her. I don't think, you know, I don't, I, I don't know. Well, Scotty once said something to the effect that she didn't believe that Zelda caused Scott to drink. And she didn't believe that Scott's drinking caused Zelda to go mad. I'm not sure if that's the word she used. It was just a bad combination. And it was life as performance art. I have to tell you, I wish it had turned out differently. And that's really all I have to say about that. So, leaving you with no uplifting ending once again. (laughs) I wish it had turned out differently. That's that's all I have. That's a good ending. Time for media. Uh, Let's start online. There's scottandzelda.com. It's a very slick website. It says it's the home of Scott and Zelda, and it's done by their family. There's not a whole lot of information on there, but there is a lot of pictures, and it looks pretty. I mean, if you want to just flip through a pretty picture book, it's online. Zelda the Musical is on YouTube, and it's on its own website, which had snagged the prime domain zeldafitzgerald.com. Oh. I know, because <laughs> that's what you look for first, right? ZeldaFitzgerald.com. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's who got that. Um, the museum um, in Montgomery, Alabama. Yeah, it's the FitzgeraldMuseum.org. Right. I always do the more esoteric things, because I know you're going to cover the, like, linear ones. So, uh-huh. um, okay, so I have Snopes' coverage of that insane asylum meme. Um, I have also just a quick... Freud versus Jung psychology to let you know why Zelda should not have been placed in the hands of the Freudians. That'll help you figure out what happened to her in assorted asylums. Okay. Like wh- why that might not have been a good idea at that time. Art.com, like I said, recently added prints of the cityscapes if you'd like to buy them. There is a YouTube video of 
The only movie I don't like Tom Hiddleston in, you guys. Come on. Uh, Midnight in Paris. I cannot get down with the Owen Wilson playing Owen Wilson because that's what he does. It's Owen Wilson. I like the story, you know, the time travel elements. He's in Paris and he goes back to the 20s and he hangs out with the Fitzgeralds and Dolly and Gertrude Stein and Josephine Baker, you know, and he falls in love with one of Picasso's mistresses who it's not like a real one. I I like that part, but. No, no. Yeah, I know. It's just um, the whole, I don't know. Maybe it was the actress that played Zelda. I'm just like, I don't think she sounded like she got dragged behind a potato truck, but maybe she did. I don't know. <laughs> so anyway, you don't even have to watch it all. Although, like she said, there's a time travel element. There, I'll just link you to a YouTube video of the time that the Owen Wilson character simply meets Hemingway and the Fitzgeralds. That's all I have on there. Oh, okay. And then I wrote Blurg, so I guess I must not have liked it. I just wrote <laughs> my notes. And then um, – <laughs> There is a Christina Ricci oeuvre, as they say, and it's called Z, The Beginning of Everything. And I did see that. It's an Amazon original, um, and it's based on Z, which was a novel um, by Teresa Ann Fowler, which I did read and I did like. But there's only one episode. It's like the pilot. And that's all that's on there. And what I saw, that one pilot, which you can watch for free on Amazon, they let you watch the one show. There's only one show. I liked it. Well, uh, a quick name of the day, you know, the little thing kind of gives the origins of the name Zelda. Mm -hmm. uh, The collected works of Zelda, I'll put a link to the book because you know what? I have just discovered there's not too much information about Zelda that doesn't also include Scott. And sometimes you you might want to read, it's just one book, the collected works of Zelda, might actually be beneficial having known her story now to go through and read her material without being distracted by his. Although some people say tender is the night and save me the waltz. If you read them like simultaneously in the same time period, you get this weird 360 vision of a marriage. So that might be not quite as fun as what dark side of the moon and wizard of Oz. (laughs) I don't, it's not that fun. (laughs) Um, but anyway, so there's that. And then also, just to keep with my theme, watch the Gaslight movie starring Ingrid Bergman. Oh. The origin of the term gaslighting, i.e. making someone feel they're crazy by your manipulation. But that's oh, not excellent. quite fair to Scott Fitzgerald, who may not have been that calculating. No, I did. I did find one nonlinear one that I thought was really cute was how to do a finger wave video, how to put finger waves in your hair. Nice. I know. I was wondering how they did it. Now I know. Does it involve dippity-doo? There was no dippity-doo at all. It's like No, it's just like um, combing and pinning the hair and then drying it. No dippity-doo. I wonder if it'll work on my hair. Probably the weight will just pull them right out. Oh, yeah. No, it wouldn't work on your hair. Your hair is too long, I think. Oh, uh, I think that's all the things I have. I keep my notes on my telephone Ew. because otherwise they're on little pieces of paper and I am not a good person with little pieces of paper. <laughs> um, did you do, I didn't hear you talk about books. Oh, no, no, not yet. Okay. So. Oh, okay. So I'm like, yeah. I have these books. Where do you? Okay. Okay. So Zelda Fitzgerald, A Voice in Paradise by Sally Klein. Mm-hmm. is very thorough and oh my goodness I even read the footnotes because there's a lot of footnotes that are big that have extra information so I loved this one this one was full of detail full of detail and very well researched this book and 
the book I'm holding in my hand right now by Linda Wagner Martin called Zelda Sarah Fitzgerald, An American Woman's Life, seem to have exceptional access to letters and papers that earlier biographers didn't seem to have. Maybe the family didn't want them released yet. Somebody was still alive that was the gatekeeper. I don't really know. But Princeton has a lot of the papers and they allowed these authors access to those. So a lot of things that were only in letters are going to be in here. Right. And the, uh, you know, it's considered the definitive biography that was, it was the first one um, by Nancy Milford, just called Zelda, a biography, Um, also has a lot of information in it. Um, Nancy Milford later said that she had showed that to Scotty and Scotty said she didn't want to read it. The family wasn't really happy with some of the things that were in it. Yes. Scotty's daughter, Eleanor Lanahan is her name, has actually written a biography of Scotty called Scotty, Mm -hmm. the daughter of dot, 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 that I actually think would round out the picture nicely if you were to read that. She went on to great things. So to think of her simply as as a little girl who couldn't take a lampshade to college is probably doing her a great disservice. Oh, it is. Yeah, she had a very interesting life and a very um, normal life. You know, she didn't go crazy. She died of cancer. Sad. But yeah. Well, and you know what? For the other side of the coin, you should read F. Scott Fitzgerald's books. We were talking the other night and you're like, no, read this one. This one. It was terribly boring, actually. (laughs) (laughs) I was reading it and I'm like, why am I reading this? I don't like it. (laughs) But I read it all. Then don't read it. I did. I already read it. It's too late. It's already made an impression on me and it wasn't favorable. <laughs> well, like I said, I've had flappers and philosophers on here and there's some that are good and some that are not good and that's fine. I have a tendency to like to read short stories. <laughs> Dorothy Parker was a short distance writer. I'm sometimes a short distance reader. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> and did you know that he wrote The Curious Case of Benjamin Button? I did know that and it's one of his short story books. It's in one of the early ones, I think. Um, That's a quite a departure. Like it had nothing to do with him. You know what I mean? <laughs> I like it. You mean it was pure fiction? Oh my goodness! <laughs> super good. Oh, so that's all I have. What what um? Books uh, the only you- other thing I have is a 1993 Zelda movie with Natasha Natasha Richardson, which I could not find. Hmm. I I couldn't find it. Um, my library didn't have it. Amazon didn't have it. Netflix didn't have it. Hulu didn't have it. Vuji didn't have it. YouTube didn't have it. And I was about to go to those other sketchy uh, streaming services and I gave up. (laughs) Yeah, let's not bring that upon ourselves. No, no. (laughs) Oh, wait. I'm sorry. I do have one more thing. Oh, what is it? Since I can't do it because I can't run it through the clearing service in time, Mm -hmm. I'm just going to say out loud the name of the song that I wanted to use for the closing Mm -hmm. and won't because of fairness. I'm not going to do it. (laughs) However, if... I can always go back and edit it in if I get the letter back, but it's a band called Tiny Victories, and it's a song called Scott and Zelda, and I will provide you with the link to go to YouTube and imagine that you're listening to the end of this podcast while listening to that. That's as close It's like to- a multimedia experience over here at the History Chicks. It Good really- job. I will be happy to put that YouTube video up on the show notes. <laughs> Well, that is all we have. Thank you for going on this very rocky, troublesome journey with us. Apologies again to Team Scott. I did not mean him harm. I tried to be balanced, but sometimes my viewpoint was colored by experience, and I'm very sorry. In the words of Zelda Fitzgerald, 
The flapper awoke from her lethargy of subdebism, bobbed her hair and put on her choicest pair of earrings and a great deal of audacity and rouge and went into battle. She flirted because it was fun to flirt and wore a one-piece bathing suit because she had a good figure. She covered her face with powder and paint because she didn't need it. And she refused to be bored chiefly because she wasn't boring. She was conscious that the things she did were the things she had always wanted to do. Thanks for listening. Bye. If you liked what you heard today, please tell a few friends or leave a review for us on iTunes. Follow us in all the usual social media places at The History Chicks, with a special shout out to our Pinterest boards, which are really getting out of control. I must like doing it, so I hope you like them too. The end song is Where'd All the Scene Girls Go by The Crash Moderns, used with permission from musicalley.com. Let's go.